Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Economics, part of the New Books Network. This is Andrea Bernardi, your host from Oxford Brooks University in England. Today we are talking about a very interesting, great new book. This is Reclaiming Populism, How Economic Fairness Can Win Back disenchanted voters. This was published by Polity Press in 2022. We welcome the authors, Dr. Eric Protzer and Dr. Paul Somerville. Please, welcome. Can you tell us something about your current past affiliations, uh, your previous um, background, and why you ended together writing this book? Yeah, certainly. Well, first of all, thank you so much for uh, hosting us. We're delighted to be here chatting about the book. Uh, I'm Eric. I uh, am from uh, Vancouver Island in Canada originally. I uh, studied economics uh, at, at, uh, at the undergraduate level in Vancouver and then went on to grad school at MIT. Uh, I now work at the Harvard Growth Lab in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And uh, Paul and I have known each other for about 10 years. We've done all sorts of projects together. Um, I'm, I'm sure Paul can give a, you know, a bit on his background, but we, we started working on the book together about three years ago when we, uh, you know, we, we sort of came to the idea in discussions together that a lot of the existing conversation around the causes of populism uh, seemed a little off. We're, we're both Canadian and, you know, there's always the observation that Canada is significantly less populist than the U.S. to the South. Um, and we felt that a lot of the common explanations surrounding income inequality or immigration were not really on the mark. And so we wrote this book that's more about social mobility and economic fairness and exploring how those affect populism and how to solve the associated policy problems. Well, Eric's, uh, Eric's very polite, not to mention that I'm 35 years older than him. Um, <laughs> and I, uh, I was born in the UK, raised in Canada. Um, to parents who didn't graduate from high school uh, and at, ended up at 31 graduating with a PhD from the University of Tokyo in Japan in international relations. I did a thesis on the Japanese automotive industry. Uh, and when I graduated, I got sucked up into the roaring profitability of global finance. So I ended up working for Deutsche Bank, Lehman Brothers, Jardine Fleming, among other companies for about uh, 20 or so odd years retired from investment banking at 47, uh, and then really began a journey that I think led to the writing of this book. I've been thinking about it for a very, very long time, uh, and uh, ran for parliament twice, 
uh, in 2006 and 2012. Uh, didn't win. I, I must say, in retrospect, I'm glad I didn't, given what politicians uh, have, to, have to put up with these days. Uh, Eric and I were part of a startup of a tech company in 2013 called LimeSpot. Uh, that's doing very well on the Shopify platform. Uh, I tried to write this book twice, uh, and it was just mush. I just didn't feel that it had any real spine. And um, I've been following Eric's career with great interest uh, since we first met. And uh, when he told me that he was graduating from MIT um, uh, that, and he was joining the Harvard Growth Lab, uh, I thought this might be a perfect project for us to do together. Uh, and so in January 2019, we began the process of writing the book. Well, this seems a very interesting uh, combination of backgrounds uh, and probably contributed to making this book so interesting. And the book has already received wonderful reviews from journalists, politicians, policymakers, economists, and especially academic colleagues uh, from Oxford University, University of Sydney, Harvard University. So th there is... Um, a strong, if you want, even counterintuitive message, which is the big uh, events in the political sphere, the race of populism, is not really linked to inequality, but to something else. We will see uh, what this is today in this conversation. Uh, let me say first that the book is about 230 pages long, organized in five chapters. Chapter one, inequality delusion. Chapter two, fairness instinct. Chapter three, economic unfairness and the rise of populism. Chapter four, the twin virtues of equal opportunity and fair and equal outcomes. Chapter five, constraints and solutions to economic fairness. So this is now a hot topic, populism, and also inequality has been a hot topic for uh, some time. Um, uh, I thought that the previous, um, uh, the previously, the, well, 10 years ago, we spoke a, a lot about inequality and then about populism. This is now about 10 years we've been doing so for many reasons, the economic crisis, the political events, but there are also some uh, books that made the debate uh, hotter and uh, more widely famous. For example, the Capital by uh, Thomas Piketty. Uh, let's start uh, maybe with um, compa comparing uh, your position and his position and his attempt into the study of inequality and the understanding of the role of inequality. Absolutely. It's, it's funny you mentioned that because the first uh, public book event we actually did was with Thomas Piketty in Paris at his World Inequality Lab. And uh, it, it was a fascinating discussion. Uh, of course, as you say, very different views coming to the, the question and uh, really interesting to contrast, I think. I, I would say that, um, you know, the, the Thomas Piketty view of the world, which is perhaps the more traditional view from the, uh, the economic left, I would say, is basically suspicious of unequal economic outcomes in, in pretty well all of their forms. You know, it's, it's seeing that uh, it's, it's the rise of, you know, billionaires and the uh, global financial crisis being associated with rich financiers that purportedly people are opposed to because they don't like to see uh, other people doing so well when they're doing so poorly. Um, but uh, in, in fact, our view is, is quite different. Our view is that there is a pronounced difference between uh, economic inequality and economic fairness. And it's really economic fairness that all the behavioral science evidence indicates that people really care about. 
Um, and, and that may seem like a, a really counterintuitive concept because, as you say, people sort of, um, you know, they sort of frame economic injustice in terms of economic inequality conventionally, and they tend to think that economic unfairness might be the same thing as economic uh, inequality, that the, the two things are, are just interchangeable. Um, but we delineate quite closely in our book that uh, economic unfairness, when we talk about that, we're talking about opportunity being not equal and reward being not according to contribution. And those two things are not the same as whether outcomes are simply equal or unequal. You, you can think that, for example, uh, some person might get rich in one way where, say, they invent a wonderful new technology that ultimately makes everyone better off. And most people probably uh, would not, in fact, begrudge that is what the evidence uh, says. Uh, and in contrast, if you have somebody who, uh, say, is a corrupt financier and they go and do a bunch of bad mortgages and they crash the economy and they uh, basically make everybody worse off in that way, well, that's, uh, that's, that's something that people get really upset about. But the reason is not because those people got wealthy, it's because the way they got wealthy was unfair and it made things harder for other people. Um, and one of the ways that we, we tackle this in the book, uh, first, like I said, is by turning to the behavioral sciences. There's uh, like one example of a paper we cite is by the Yale psychologists, uh, Starman, Sheskin, and Bloom, where they show that once you separate out these two concepts of economic unfairness, where they're talking about, you know, is opportunity equal and is rewarding, reward according to contribution, once you separate that out from the idea of economic inequality, are outcomes simply the same or not the same? They find that there is no evidence that people are bothered by economic inequality itself. Rather, they are bothered by something that is often confounded with inequality, which is economic unfairness. Uh, and there's plenty of evidence linking that economic unfairness to populism specifically, but not the issue of uh, income inequality its, itself. We, we show in the quantitative analysis behind the book that, in fact, Income inequality is a very poor correlate of the geography of populism across the rich world, whereas uh, low social mobility is a very good correlate of the geography of populism. And that refers to a situation where uh, your outcomes in life are basically decided by your family origins. And that's quite clearly unfair. You know, it means you're uh, becoming successful in a way that is unfair. And it's not quite the same issue of uh, whether, um, you know, there are simply too many successful people to begin with. You know, when we um, uh, first started uh, researching the book, so we we did it almost like a Ph.D. The first six months uh, we did a literature review, you know, at four or five hundred books and articles uh, that we looked at. And as as we were going through there, um, it was pretty clear that there was this real kaleidoscope of explanations uh, about what causes populism, uh, what was going on in all these different countries. And they all seem to just scatter in different directions, which, of course, created different prescriptions. And you know, it's kind of ironic that you start with Piketty because I did a review of Piketty on a television show five or six years ago when the book came out um, where I said, you know, I understand, you know, some of his data around capital um, and labor, uh, where you're better off if you've got you know, you're earning your income from capital rather than labor because they grow at different rates, they can tax at different rates. But the real problem that we have with Piketty uh, is his prescription. And he's just, I guess, written a book, A Time for Socialism. Um, 
you know, in our view, that is uh, really dangerous. Uh, it's, a, it's a really bad prescription. It'll probably kill you. You know, if you go down that road, it certainly killed a lot of people. Uh, and so one of the things we wanted to try to do was change the conversation about populism, which I think Eric's paper that he published prior as part of um, our research and then prior to the book being published in September 2019, uh, that, uh, that when you wanted to think about populism, you had to put economic unfairness at the center. But just to talk about Piketty for a second, I mean, socialism uh, is a proven disaster. And, and the reason is it's because it's based on replacing capitalism. We, we put capitalism at the center of fair economies. We put capitalism at the center of uh, high social mobility. And his, uh, he probably forgot that um, what socialism talks about is a different form of ownership and production. Uh, and this has always resulted, wherever it's been tried, uh, at best, you end up with authoritarian government and at worst, criminal. And, you know, socialism was about transformative change. It was displacing capitalism uh, with a completely new regime, you know, based on, a, you know, a different system of, of ownership and production. And very importantly, a unitary political system to manage and maintain that change. And that's really important. So recent calls that we need to rediscover or redeploy uh, socialism is, in our view, terribly mistaken. And what we what we do, and we'll talk about it a bit later, is we try to twin equal opportunity with fair, unequal outcomes, where you need uh, a very uh, robust market. Socialism, among other things, rejects private ownership, which is at the heart of a market economy. Uh, and socialism embraces all political means to achieve that end, because um, in the end, the effort to create a socialist economy was really a historical imperative and remains so, almost like the second coming of Christ. So the activist state that, it, that imposed the socialist economy, again, where private ownership uh, is outlawed, ultimately, in all cases, became more and more repressive, usually criminal. And as we say in the book, leaves millions and millions of people dead and poorly made automobiles. And... Uh, so when we when we think about equal opportunity and fair and equal outcomes, the the political mechanism to deliver that is liberal democracy. And that's why we talk about reclaiming populism for that liberal d democratic uh, process or project. And it's very much a compromise that includes the acceptance of the market as a vital engine of prosperity and revenue married with parliamentary democracy as an arena for managing the economic, social and cultural dislocation that's caused by technical uh, innovation. So um, Piketty is, is misunderstands the problem and his prescription is completely wrong. This is very interesting. And uh, I always remind my own students that we, we cannot talk about capitalism as uh, one single um, item. There, are, there is such an important literature on the varieties of capitalism. And maybe also with your book, we can discuss which variety of capitalism is uh, most effective in terms of equality, but in particular in terms of economic fairness. And we will see also with populism. So let's focus now on the three key of this book, inequality, populism, and economic fairness. And then we go to the analysis that is based on your uh, empirical data, and then we go to some uh, policy recommendations. So what do we mean with uh, inequality, and what do you, how do you judge the current uh, uh, measures of inequality and the current debate on inequality? For example, what does the Great Gatsby curve tell us about uh, 
um, the link between inequality and social mobility and uh, how have you been uh, dealing with uh, the notion of inequality? Certainly. So, I, I mean, I think that the measures of inequality that exist in and of themselves are fine if that's the issue that you're concerned about. You know, there's nothing wrong with computing a Gini coefficient per se. There are, of course, alternative uh, approaches to that. Um, but I think that the way that people uh, think about it conceptually in terms of uh, economic justice is really where things start to go awry. And uh, one element of that uh, as we argue in the book, is that I, I, I think people really overinterpret the Great Gatsby curve, which, uh, you know, if you're the audience and you're not familiar with, it's something from uh, the, the uh, also Canadian uh, academic Miles Korak, where he showed that in a cross-country setting uh, and even at, at a subnational setting later in North America, that uh, the rates of income inequality uh, tend to be correlated with the rates of, of social mobility. That is, it tends to be on average that places with worse income inequality also have worse social mobility. Um, and, uh, you know, of, of course, there are all sorts of persuasive causal connections between the two. You can imagine that in a situation of uh, low social mobility, it's going to entrench a hereditary elite, for example, uh, and vice versa, in a situation of uh, high income inequality, it could be that the elite, uh, you know, feel predisposed not to invest in those who are not so well off, um, thus leading to lower social mobility. That being said, uh, the evidence on the matter is that the uh, connection is, you know, certainly not uh, decisive. There's the, the work of Raj uh, Chetty, the, uh, perhaps the foremost uh, academic today on social mobility and its causes, where, you know, he, he does a causal decomposition of social mobility and the factors that contribute to it in the United States. And he finds that income inequality is just one of about eight or nine different factors that contribute to explaining social mobility at about uh, equal measures. And even then, there's a large amount that's left over. And, uh, you know, it, it should lead one to conclude that the, the Great Gatsby curve, uh, there's a correlation there. But I mean, lots of variables are correlated, but not interchangeable. You can imagine that education and GDP per capita, for example, are, can, are correlated in the same way. But, you know, you wouldn't use one in, in place of the other. Uh, certainly not. And um, I think the, the consequence of, of that confusion is that uh, people, people do tend to frame the, the conversation around economic justice today, essentially, uh, often in remarkably um, hard left terms that, you know, it's, it's just all about uh, are economic outcomes equal or unequal without uh, giving any thought to, well, somebody could have this, you know, the same unequal outcome. You could have a person who gets rich in one way and then a person who gets rich in another way that is far, far worse. And if you're looking just through the lens of income inequality, uh, you really can't tell those apart. You can't tell somebody apart who, uh, say, you know, starts a successful multinational, employs lots and lots of people, or somebody who engages in, you know, grand scale uh, oligarchy and corruption. And both could have the same amount of riches, but one is quite clearly worse than the other. Well, one of the I've asked you about. Oh, sorry, Paul. Well, just that you know, when we were doing the literature review, uh, again, it was this kaleidoscope of of theories and arguments that, you know, didn't really seem to get anyone anywhere. But we, we started to come across this meme uh, three or four months in of the idea of fairness, that this that it wasn't about inequality, that inequality was different than fairness. So this is this sent us down a very, you know, a very uh, strong path. 
Uh, and what was so interesting is that, you know, once you, you know, it's like when you learn a new word, suddenly you see it everywhere. Uh, once we got this idea, it was really about fairness. And then, then we said, okay, then it's economic unfairness and then it's low social mobility. Once we started to go down that path, uh, then we started to be able to see how other people were kind of saying the same way, that, you know, one way or the other. And we've got some great quotes in, in the book. One is one we start the book with, Lucy Kellaway, who's this wonderful Financial Times columnist who gave up uh, her, her job at FT to go and teach math uh, in Southwark uh, in deprived neighborhoods to children, many of whom uh, are on breakfast programs because they come to school hungry. And she, she took them uh, to the most expensive penthouse uh, in London just to have a look at it, 15,000 pounds a night or something. And she was quite surprised that they all thought that that was marvelous uh, and that, gee whiz, they really wished that if they had as much money as Jeff Bezos, they would do the same thing, right? And uh, uh, Jonathan Freeland in The Guardian wrote that the, the, what Corbyn didn't understand when he wanted to equalize outcomes was that people in the working class and the middle class, but particularly the working class, see that as a way of holding people back. The people, people don't want outcomes equalized. What they want is a fair chance to get rich. And so it's, yeah, it's, and I, very, it's very powerful in the literature and anecdotally. I, I'd add that that's an important reason uh, why so much of the left in, in, popul in populism-affected countries is struggling today. I mean, the, the French left is basically dead. Jeremy Corbyn imploded. Uh, the you know more uh, left flank of the Democratic Party in the U.S. is proving wildly unpopular. It's a common thread that they're concerned about equalizing outcomes and that people don't, in fact, that want that. They want the chance to get ahead on their own merits, on their own talents and effort. Very clear, very interesting. The same, uh, I could say, about the Italian left, uh, if you ask me. Uh, but earlier, I asked you about the measurements of inequality. Yeah, the, the empirical data is very strong and uh, very well standardized, so we can compare across time and across geography. But often it is popularized in a way which becomes, uh, I, I, I think, uh, too superficial. For example, if you read, I don't know, the 2021 uh, Oxfam report and they tell you that there is a 10 guy in the world that they own uh, as much as uh, 5 billion people in the world and then the 2022 report even more ah there are three guys in the world that own uh, 10 like 10 billion people in the world so uh, on on other side some economists argue that if you put into the equations also what in, in many countries you get in terms of free education free welfare and uh, benefits the, the the issue of inequality itself is less of, of a problem, or at least less dramatic of a problem. But anyway, this is not the point of your book. The, your, the point of your book is uh, the link between populism and economic unfairness. So let's move to populism. How do you define it? Because also, also on this, we have uh, some disagreements. So is it uh, with what notion of populism, for example, is populism by definition something evil or something bad, something that we need to reject or not? Well, Okay, first of all, the definition that we're working with in the book to, you know, quantitatively consider different cases of populism in the world is uh, sort of a, a synthesis of the relevant academic literature. And we essentially are working with two core qualities of populism. One, anti-elitism. And that's the sense that, you know, there's some corrupt elite that is holding everybody back and uh, you need to do away with them. And second, anti-pluralism 
or the sense that, you know, only my political tribe has the right to make legitimate political decisions. And if you're outside of that tribe, you do not have the right to make uh, to make those decisions. It's uh, the things that range from, uh, you know, chance of lock her up to actually arresting journalists in, in some countries. Uh, that being said, we, uh, you know, as perhaps we suggest in the framing of the book's title, Reclaiming Populism, we think that the energies and the frustrations that go into populism do not need to necessarily go in this illiberal direction. And that, uh, in, in fact, if you, if you look at the history of populism, the first use of the, uh, the, the term populism as it really developed was in the, uh, in the historical People's Party in, uh, in 19th century America that ultimately actually came up with a lot of ideas that uh, got incorporated into core democratic party policy, like ending the gold standard and uh, prosecuting monopolists. Um, so it, it's, it's not, uh, the, the outcomes that tend to occur with populism today are illiberal and uh, scary, but the frustrations behind it are simply grounded in the sense that people aren't being treated fairly. And that kind of frustration, if properly addressed, uh, can be channeled into something that is still compatible. Well, first of all, not only compatible with the liberal democratic mainstream, but actually useful in that you can use it to improve social mobility and alleviate economic unfairness in society. You know, uh, when, there's a wonderful book. Uh, I, as I mentioned, I did my doctorate in Japan, so I'm always interested in books on Japan by John Dower called Embracing Defeat. And I love this idea of an active verb in the in the title. So the working title for our book was Defeating Populism. Uh, and we actually went a very long way, almost a year and a half, uh, writing three chapters. It was part of our book proposal that Polity helped us with. Um, where we, where they came back to us, the contributing editor, George Orwers, who was incredibly helpful, says, I don't think you guys are talking about defeating populism. You're, you're talking about something like reclaiming it. And of course, the light went on because uh, one of the things we stress in the book is that, is that the, the core problem of economic unfairness and that, that people are reacting to this, you got to take these complaints very seriously. And uh, with Eric's help, we made sure there was a real precise way of thinking about it. So these are these are problems. These are issues that need to be taken seriously. They need to be they need to be uh, d- identified and defined very precisely. So one of the uh, one of the important points about populism is that it's an expression of a long brewing deep dis- discontent. This didn't just kind of come out of nowhere in 2015. One of the things that we do in the book is we clearly show that this was going on for a long time. It's really rooted in Reaganomics. It goes right back to Milton Friedman. There's there's a lot of uh, uh, architecture around the problem of populism that has to do with how people thought about what the market was and what the role of the state was. And as Eric said, populists target corrupt elites. It's very, very important um, that in the view of populists have rigged the system to favor themselves and they identify easily identified people groups. Well, often it has a kind of racial uh, anti-immigrant kind of tone to it. So Trump and others will talk about the corrupt system that's been captured by the mainstream media, a corrupt economic, political, and cultural class that's forgotten, that left the forgotten people behind. In addition, uh, very importantly, it's it's very anti-plural. And as Eric uh, said, political opponents are illegitimate captured with the idea of lock them up, the one true people. And the key thing here is, and this is why 
it's so dangerous at this stage. It's because these populist leaders argue that only they have the legitimate claim to political authority. They're deeply opposed to the idea of democratic competition. I remember David Brooks of the New York Times writing something like, you know, a liberal populist treat half the country as a moral cancer. And they view the cultural and demographic changes over the last 50 or 60 years as a kind of alien invasion. So the, the, the challenge is, is how do you how do you accept the fact that the complaints are legitimate? And then and then why is the amplification so negative? But, uh, let me introduce another colleague in this story, a colleague in particular of uh, uh, Eric. I'm talking about Professor Danny Roderick uh, from Harvard University. He also wrote about the link between populism and inequality and also having, um, well, you also look at the past. So what happened and something tragic tragic happened at the beginning of the last century. So he is almost uh, um, concerned about what could happen again. So are, are you optimistic about what is going to happen in the future? Oh, boy. Uh, well, I mean, first of all, let me say that uh, Danny Roderick is, is uh, you know, he's a great guy and an excellent thinker. His office is actually just uh, one floor down from mine at, at Harvard. Um, his, his views actually, I think, more or less are, uh, you know, in, in important ways aligned with uh, ours. We certainly cite him in the book several times. Uh, you know, he's written before in uh, opinion pieces that inequality is not a good predictor of uh, conventional indicators of political discontent. He, uh, you know, in, in his paper, uh, Populism and the uh, the economics of globalization uh, wrote about how, uh, similar to our argument, it's it's not inequality, it's economic unfairness uh, that uh, plausibly leads to populism in the case of the consequences of globalization. With regard to, uh, you know, what the future holds. Um, I, I think it sort of varies by country, but on the whole, I'm, I'm certainly a little worried. And I, I think Paul is too. And that's one of the reasons we wrote this book. We think that uh, a lot of the conventional uh, political responses uh, that are opposed to populism have been framed essentially in terms of identity politics uh, from the, the social justice crowd or equalizing outcomes. And as a consequence of things like that, you have, uh, you know, even Biden really struggling in the U.S. to maintain uh, popularity. We'll see what happens in the midterms and even whether Trump makes a comeback in the subsequent presidential election. Um, you know, uh, there, there's also a, a similar uh, sort of crisis of the left in uh, the U.K., although I, I have to admit I'm not as concerned about the uh, long term, you know, state of, of democracy there. I don't think that figures like Boris Johnson are quite the same as Trump. Um, I, I think, you know, if, if anywhere uh, is, is a country that uh, I, I'm a little hopeful for, it, it would probably have to be France. I, th I think that France still has reasonably functional political institutions and it has some willpower to try and uh, remake the state to, to boost social mobility and to fix the economic unfairness uh, that, that drives populism in France, which in their case, uh, we argue in the book, is due to an overbearing state. Um, so I, I, I would say I'm a little hopeful about that, but as with everything, we really have to see how it goes. So, um, so let's, let's come at it slightly differently and think about uh, what, the, what the problem is. And one of the things that we talk a lot about uh, in the book, uh, well, actually throughout the book, is that fairness is a moving target. It's not something that's static, 
uh, it changes over time. And the reason it changes over time uh, is because of technological innovation. Uh, and, and in the last uh, 20 years, and likely to be much more so going forward, is environmental impact. So technological innovation uh, changes the structure of the economy. And in the changing of the structure of the economy, you get big winners and big losers. And this is a constant theme. It's been a constant theme since, you know, really like the 1850s. The challenge then is how does the political system manage the, this, this uh, huge change within the economy, the structural change in the economy, and the, creators of the creation of winners and losers? And that's, that's the challenge that uh, many countries have failed uh, over the last 30 or 40 years. And the reason is, is because figures like Tony Blair, uh, figures like Bill Clinton, Paul Martin uh, of Canada, they really bought the neoliberal argument that the market is always right. Uh, and so as, as these deep economic changes were creating perennial winners and perennial losers of the largest scale, as, as you mentioned earlier about the billionaires that control all this wealth, the political system did not adjust accordingly. And the problem with that is once that happens, once you talk about, you know, one, two, maybe even three generations of that kind of uh, unfairness, and I was careful not to use the word inequality, their kind of unfairness, then you start to embed a hereditary ruling class. And there's a lot of literature about how people who go to university marry the same people and they get their kids, uh, you know, the, the introductions to companies so they get the best jobs and, and on and on and on. And then it becomes a social and cultural problem. It becomes a deeply embedded social and cultural issue. It goes beyond the, the ability of the political system to manage. And this is why, quite frankly, and we say it in the book, we think the risk is the United States is going to get a lot worse before it gets much better. Uh, the, that, that the, and there's a word for it that Eric uh, can certainly touch on that comes from the work that the Growth Lab does. It's called the syndrome. Uh, why, why countries fall into this problem? But the, the, the challenge is, is that technological change creates deep changes in the economy. It creates winners and losers. And within a generation, if the political system doesn't deal with it, then you start to get these big problems. In your book, uh, you refer to global events, uh, global issues like migration, and you also mentioned China. Migration is uh, uh, appears in your book more often than China. China, if I'm not wrong, doesn't have a, a prominent um, presence in your book. Uh, but in some countries, both migration and China have been uh, targeted as the causes of all sorts of problems of the past, uh, say, 20 years. Um, if I can ask something more about China, what do you think... Uh, is the role of China in these series of events. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, when we're talking about the role of China and its contributor to populism, what uh, people are really talking about there is the impact of trade with China and the way that, uh, you know, importing goods from China and having things that were previously produced in high-income countries being produced in China has led to job losses uh, in, in high-income countries. And Uh, for one, I, I would note that there certainly is good empirical evidence from people like David Otter and others that uh, that kind of job loss is uh, associated uh, quite specifically with increased political polarization and uh, increased populism. Uh, and importantly, 
Um, you know, we, we argue in the book that the reason that happens and the channel through which that happens is specifically economic unfairness. And that's actually so, uh, an argument that uh, Danny Roderick uh, makes about globalization, that, you know, there are all these job losses that consistently occur within the economy. And it's kind of curious that populists, uh, you know, tend to pick on the issue of trade losses, of job losses from trade specifically, when it's just really one minor part of the labor market churn. Um, and the, the issue there is that, uh, you know, it's not just about whether you lose the job, it's the way in which you lose the job. And if you're having to compete with, uh, you know, this, this factory overseas where uh, they're, they're not making products of the same quality, you know, they're sort of uh, being a little dicey with the way in which they comply with trade uh, regulations, arguably, um, maybe uh, have some, you know, uncompetitive or some anti-competitive effects going through uh, you know, currency, uh, like, you know, the, the exchange rate and, and whatnot, uh, people are liable to think that that's unfair. They think that they're losing their jobs to people who aren't playing by the same rules. Um, so it's, it's a really interesting finding. And, and it's certainly something that is uh, at, at the core of the issue. What I would note in addition to that, though, is that some countries have been much better prepared for that issue than others. Uh, you know, for example, um, there's uh, these studies about job losses from the China shock, the trade shock with China in the U.S. versus Canada. And even though proportionally the shock was more severe in Canada in terms of initial job losses, the evidence that's available indicates that there was no statistically significant job recovery in the U.S. following that kind of shock, whereas 60 percent of the people who were affected in Canada found alternative work. So, I mean, there's a huge difference that relies on the extent to which uh, there's, a, there's a fair economy, you know, like things, things like, is there a universal health care? Is there things like uh, unemployment insurance so that if somebody faces a shock, like a job loss, they aren't necessarily going into debt? Is there reasonably, uh, you know, affordable education and other forms of social safety net supports so that people can retrain and find alternative paths to opportunity? Those kinds of things are really important, and they have uh, shaped, we argue, the way in which those shocks have played out. When I was uh, an investment banking um, chief economist, uh, one of my you know roles was to uh, forecast a number of different economies and how they were going to do, you know, currency, inflation, interest rates, this kind of stuff. Uh, and, it, and it became very clear, uh, as, you, as you highlighted a little bit earlier, that a capitalism is what you make of it. And that's why we have such different outcomes. That's why we have such different levels of social mobility. That's why you have such different levels of economic unfairness. And that's why we have such different events around around populism. I mean, Eric's point about the China shock and the U.S. and Canada is a case in point. I think anyone who's lived and spent any time in the United States realizes that Americans, for the most part, live over a trap door. Mm. And so when you integrate uh, a, a, a one billion person economy uh, into the into the global trading system, uh, that economy builds, you know, world class uh, infrastructure. Uh, you develop uh, container traffic. Uh, that particular um, country has some even higher levels uh, of numeracy and literacy than the United States, uh, and then you and then and then you uh, uh, allow uh, a free uh, and unfettered uh, trade to occur. Um, people who don't have access to any kind of re-education programs, uh, where a health shock um, can bankrupt uh, even a you know middle class upper middle class family. 
um, you're going to get you're going to get very different kinds of outcomes. And so China uh, is it wasn't the cause. Uh, China drove the process because of the integration of this extraordinarily large labor pool uh, into the into the global trading system. But the countries that uh, didn't have in place the tools that we identify and discuss quite concretely in chapter four are the tools that you need in order to help people navigate um, shocks so that uh, one of the things we talk about economic unfairness is that economic unfairness creates low social mobility and high vulnerability to economic shocks. And the U.S. is a case in point. Since you mentioned just now your previous background in finance, do you think there is a correlation between how our economies and our societies are unfair or unequal and the degree to which that economy is financialized? And with this, I, meant, I mean, not only individual, I'm not only referring to individual rents, but also to the investment decisions of companies and the, the actual economic policy of nations. Uh, so are the countries where finance is more important in the governance of the businesses and everything else, are those countries more unequal and unfair? Or, well, or finance is just uh, an inevitable component of modern economies? Well, I, see, I, see, the point is I don't think the unfairness outcome is inevitable. I think what happened was was that, you know, and I, I was part of it. I mean, I... I decided not to take a tenured position, a potentially tenured position in university to go and work for a global investment bank because I added up the numbers. Uh, and in my experience, uh, as, as I navigated a 20-year career in, in the financial economy, uh, was that many, many economies are really happy to have uh, you know, high-profile investment bankers and asset managers and hedge fund managers because uh, they made a lot of money Uh, they maybe donated a lot of money to politicians. They didn't necessarily pay uh, a high percentage of what they earned in taxes, or at least um, in terms of the actual amount. The, the famous Warren Buffett uh, quote that, you know, his effective tax rate is 15% and his secretary's was 40%. So the point is it didn't have to be that way. Um, I mean, the thing is, is that I think up until the financial crisis, you know, financial capitalists were held in really high esteem. And then everyone then discovered that a lot of them didn't know what they were doing. Uh, so again, I don't think it's, it's, a, it's not a natural um, evolution. You just have to know how to regulate and tax newly emerging industries in such a way that revenue is brought back into the tools of equal opportunity. I, I would add that, uh, you know, there's quite good evidence that financial crises specifically lead to increased uh, political extremism. There's a great paper by Funke Schulerich and Trebesch where they look at the history of financial crises from 1870 to 2014, and they find that over and over, uh, whenever you, know, you compare two events where one is a financial crisis and one is another macroeconomic crisis that imposes losses of the same size, Uh, the financial crisis will result in about 30% more increase for the far right, and you get no impact like that at all from uh, the other type of just regular macroeconomic crisis. And the authors talk about how, you know, it, it uh, arguably results from the perceived uh, from the perceived moral hazard, policy failures, favoritism. We might call it unfairness, but uh, it, it really is a, a case in point of, of Paul's argument that, Uh, you know, it's, it's what you make of it. You, you need a financial sector in the economy in order to have economic growth. 
so that people can, uh, you know, fi find a livelihood. And that's essential for social mobility. But if you don't uh, regulate it in the right way, it can spill over into these crises where there's the perception that, uh, you know, a small protected financial elite are causing huge disruptions for everybody else. Wonderful. Since uh, you talked about regulation, maybe we can conclude this conversation. Uh, I, I can ask each of you a couple of policies that you would uh, enforce if you became uh, senior politicians in either Canada or the United States. So some policy recommendations uh, that uh, are the result of your empirical study. Well, something that we uh, really emphasize in the last two chapters of the book is the uh, tree of policy inputs that support social mobility and a fair economy. And we argue that uh, it rests essentially on equal opportunity and fair unequal outcomes. You need to have all these policy supports in place uh, so that, you know, people can, say, get an education and access hubs of economic opportunity Uh, and be protected against shocks uh, that are unfair through things like healthcare and, uh, you know, employment insurance and whatnot. But at the same time, you have to pair that with fair, unequal outcomes, because otherwise that opportunity just remains theoretical. It's not actually translated to tangible success, and thus social mobility remains stagnant. And you can see how that plays out in different countries across the world. In the United States, for example, Uh, you know, there's a threadbare social safety net. There really isn't the substantive support for equal opportunity. And as a consequence, social mobility is quite low. In contrast, uh, France has a world-class social safety net, world-class government services, ranging from education to healthcare to transport, everything you can think of. But it has uh, such an overbearing uh, system of taxation and regulation that it can make it really hard for people to get ahead. You know, The Economist Uh, interviewed a Parisian barber a couple of years ago who said that he had to he had to do 200 haircuts a month just to pay what he owed in taxes and social security contributions before he earned any take-home pay. And that can make it really hard for somebody to actually climb that ladder of social mobility. So uh, we actually spent some time in Chapter 5 detailing for the US, the UK, Italy, and France what we think are the leading issues that are country-specific. It's not a universal solution, but there are country-specific problems that cause low social mobility and in turn lead to populism in those places. Uh, I mean, you know, you can think of, of things like in the U.S., we talk about healthcare and education. In the U.K., we talk a lot about regional infrastructure and uh, housing. Uh, in France, we talk about the need to alleviate the, uh, you know, the, the system of overbearing taxation and regulation. In Italy, there's a lot about modernizing the taxation and regulation systems and justice systems. Um, so it, it's all in the book in great detail for anyone who's interested. Well, and I think, I mean, this was a really important contribution uh, that Eric made to the book that comes out of his work at the, at the Harvard Growth Lab. There is no silver bullet. You know, there is no one or two uh, policy um, prescription that's, that's going to solve your problem of economic unfairness or make an economy uh, perpetually fair. Fairness is very difficult to achieve. Uh, we spend the fourth chapter uh, examining that in great detail. Uh, there's a number of things that uh, that come out of uh, equal opportunity and fair, unequal outcomes. Uh, it's very complicated. It's very difficult. There's not a lot of countries that actually manage to achieve consistently high uh, social mobility and economic fairness. It's a difficult thing to do. Uh, and uh, so uh, not only is it complicated, it's very dependent on each country. 
So it's more a question, for example, if I was, uh, if I, you know, actually won a seat and been in a cabinet in Canada, you know, what would I do for Canada? Well, uh, one of the things that the Trudeau government has just done is to put in a national childcare strategy. Um, that I think was desperately necessary. Uh, I think it'll go a long way to keeping them in power uh, the next the next election. Um, there's a huge issue right now uh, in housing, uh, the cost of housing. Canada's got the most, I think, after New Zealand, the frothiest housing market. It's it's essentially if you don't own a house, um, then you're never going to own one at the current uh, the current rates. So that's that's potentially going to be an issue for a country that is very vocal about bringing in 400,000 uh, people a year um, in, in terms of new Canadians. If I looked at the United States, it's healthcare, pure and simple, uh, as something that need to fix uh, right away because uh, unlike every any other uh, high-income country, so many people in the United States go personally bankrupt because of a health event. Uh, as Eric suggested, in the UK, it has a lot to do with regional uh, infrastructure. So there is no silver bullet. It's not education, 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 as Tony Blair once said. Uh, it's very profound. It's it's deeply needs to be understood. And I would encourage your readers to uh, take a look at chapters four and five of our book to see how we talk about it. Thank you very much. This is a very interesting, very original, also very accessible book, accessible for everybody, but a must read for policymakers, politicians, scholars, and colleagues. We spoke with Eric Protzer from Harvard University and Paul Somerville from the University of Victoria. This book is Reclaiming Populism, How Economic Fairness Can Win Back Disenchanted Voters published by Polity in 2022. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much.